Hi there and welcome to Crime Time Inc. My name is Simon McLean. I'm a former murder squad detective here in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, as well as having worked nationwide undercover and in surveillance operations for many years. Here is my partner in crime, Time Inc, Tom Wood, retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police. But a warning, you might struggle with this accent. <laughs> good day, everybody. Good day. My name's Tom, and I spent a long career in policing in the more genteel part of Scotland, the East Coast, near Edinburgh. I spent much of my early and middle years as a detective working on serious crime. Later, as a senior officer, I was involved in running big operations and major public order events. Simon and I are both writers, and we share an interest in true crime and what goes on behind the scenes. There'll be very few people with our insights and detailed knowledge. Good evening, Mr Wood. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. I'm very well indeed. And we've got a very special guest on tonight, a non-police officer. I think that's a, a really nothing to do with, with crime itself, Donnie. Not a law enforcement officer. Well, not that I've told you. <laughs> Maybe the other side of the fence comes to mind. You know, that's probably closer to it. Donnie, the first thing I've got to clear up is you've been a bit elusive about this coming on video and all that stuff. Are you the Banksy of the West End of Glasgow? I wish I was, with the money that he's got. Yeah. You've got a big presence on Facebook, but it's kind of anonymous, isn't it? It's the West End. What's it called? Glasgow West okay. End. It's only anonymous because nobody reads it. Well, I have to know that's not true. <laughs> well, f first of all, the reason it's anonymous is that I have other jobs and I've had other jobs, and a lot of the time you really don't want people to know what it is else you're doing. It started off as a hobby, even less than a hobby. If you cast your mind back to 2010, when we, well, I get snowed in, I was in Great George Street, at the flat at the top of Great George Street, and the snow come down, and uh, I was I was working down in London at the time, and I was fortunate enough to be at home when the snow came down. <laughs> so I, I, I three weeks kept us in there. I can't get that car out yet. It's at the top of that great hill, you know. So I get stuck there, and I thought things to do. And uh, I worked previously for pub companies, and so reasonably high level. And I was introducing social media as part of what we were doing as pub companies. So I thought, let's have some fun and start up my own pages. You know, you have to look and see. And there wasn't one called Glasgow West End. And I thought, let's just open one, Glasgow West End. And that's how it came about. And I've been on it, off it, on it, off it for the last 10 years and 10 or 13 years now. Uh, we've got a following. Followers were up to 18,000 I've got now. Uh, last month uh, i've had just under two million hits on it uh, so yeah it's, it's quite uh, it's quite exciting really sometimes and yeah i've, I've got a bit more time now because i am well i'm not semi-retired i still do a lot of things but i've got a lot more time at home i do some work on it now and i love to see what it is that makes people like things and i think that's you know very important what do you think people like you've got to understand the medium the medium is visual you know, this whole thing, social media, is visual. And, you know, as we both know about writing and words, it's totally different. It's the other side of the coin from writing and words. It's completely visual. The secret is you've got to get a good visual. And the following secret to that is keep it simple. 
And the next secret to that is keep it singular. You want one good, simple visual, and you don't want a group. You know, a lot of people post on social media and say, here's a photo dump. You know, here's 650 photographs I took on holiday. Nobody reads it. Nobody looks at it. I wouldn't. You wouldn't. We don't. You know, so it's just a sort of vanity thing. People are dumping it on there. Whereas you want to pick one good photograph. I have my own personal Facebook pages as well. I think the trick is trying to find one photograph. And that can take you a while. What photograph sums up the experience that you had today? And put one on. It's quite hard, actually. So get one photograph and keep the words to a minimum. That was around 2010 and over the last 13 years. During that period of time, Donnie, because you've been a wee bit modest, the posts that you put up have always got, or mostly always got, a historical theme to them. I.e. you put a picture of Kelvin Bridge 100 years ago and a picture of it today. That was only last week. I love the idea of the immediacy of communication. And I saw the picture on Facebook, which was a colourised postcard of Kelvin Bridge from, I reckon, 1908, something like that. It was colourised, so it had a a nice faded effect to it. And I was walking across Kelvin Bridge that morning, lovely blue sky, so I took the exact same photograph. And just a little 30 seconds, put the two together, now and then. So I just post it and put now and then. And so I put Glasgow West End at Kelvin Bridge, now and then, with the photograph, previous one at the top, the latest one at the bottom. So far, it's had 1.75 million clicks on it. I've had people, you know, commenting on it in Arabic, Israelis commenting on it. And lots of people from South America, Cuba, Eastern countries. What about Edinburgh? No, they, well, they haven't got internet in Edinburgh yet, have they? It's like the, the pigeon's on its way. To the... <laughs> I'm fascinated by that, that you've hit on this formula. And just the, the, just the simplest, the single picture. And you're absolutely right. When I get a photo dumped from people, even people I know, members of my family, with 50 photographs in it, I have to admit, I don't look at any of them. Nobody does. Nobody does. We're, we're fooling ourselves, you know. And uh, But then again, mate, it's a great place to store your old photographs, you know. <laughs> it, is, it is a great way to store it, you know. It's like the wedding album, Donny. It's like the wedding album. You know, you, yeah. you pay £3,000 to a photographer to take videos and photographs of your of your kids' weddings and then nobody nobody ever looks at them. They look at one photograph of the bridal party and that's it. For a minute there, Tom, I thought you were going to say you take videos of your wedding and I was going to jump in and say there was no video when you got married, Tom. With we had the old box camera <laughs> with a video of it. So Donnie, again you've been a bit modest with just a photograph. A lot of the posts give some of the context and a lot of the history of the city. I'm sort of self-effacing there. You're asking me what's the secret of social media. Keep it simple, one photograph. That's not why I do it. I don't do it just to, I find, you know, getting almost two million clicks in a photograph amazing. But it's not why I do it. I do it because I'm really genuinely interested in the, the culture and the history not just of Glasgow, the West End, but the whole of Glasgow, the whole of Scotland, everything really. And I love connections, and I love finding connections in places that, where you know things have happened, and all of a sudden it all connects together. Which is why I invited you on here tonight because of some of the connections that you and I were chatting about last week over a coffee. And what you mentioned was the Glasgow journalist, very famous journalist and author Jack House, uh, and some of his work. 
and you mentioned the Murder Mile, which I think he brought out in the 60s or maybe 1961, something like that, uh, the Murder Mile, about four very infamous murders in Glasgow. Square Mile of Murder. Square Mile of Murder. So what is the Square Mile of Murder then? Yeah, it was uh, a Square Mile in Glasgow West End, from basically from Blyswood Square through to Kelvin Bridge. Okay. And within that Square Mile, there were four very infamous murders, and sadly, uh, well, you know, added to that with a, a very tragic murder a, a few years ago, very close to one of the original murders. Jack House wrote uh, a book which is popular, but they actually made a television series on it, I think 1980, with some, some famous names. On those four murders? Of those four murders, it was a six-part dramatisation Six-part television series, BBC, 1980. Gregor Fisher, Ricky Fulton, John Grieve, Tony Roper and James Hazeldine in it. So some big famous names there. Sounds like yeah. a comedy show, doesn't it? Well, I, I think that's where it all started. <laughs> they sort of worked their way out of uh, seriousness. But uh, yeah, so there's a six-part thing. And yeah, there was the murders, as we spoke about over coffee, were all quite dramatic. And the one that led me to look into this was that a couple of weeks ago, there was a new pub opening, a reopening pub used to be called the Carnarvon. And that was the end of uh, George Street and uh, the Carnarvon Street near West Princess Street, which is where one of the murders are. But anyway, the pub was called the Carnarvon and it was reopening last week as the Camerons. And there's a very famous picture that I used in my one picture theory. I've got the one picture Linda McCartney took of husband Paul coming to the car with a carriot on their way to Campbelltown. And very famous picture. It was in her book of sort of uh, snapshots of Paul. And in the background, it says Camerons. Now, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the web about this, this Camerons, because the pub was there and it was called Camerons. But actually, you go and look at the pub, it's not Camerons. The pub in the picture is not Camerons. You know, down to the, the stonework in the picture is brick. The stonework in the pub that was Camerons, which was the Carnarvon, which is back to called Camerons, is large sandstone blocks. There's all the buildings around there. Are. But the big question is, where is it? Because Linda McCartney says it was there. She said it was on Carnarvon Street. You know, it's, everyone takes us. But anyway. That's beside the point. And looking at the new name, which has gone back to Cameron's of this pub, I remember that it was called Oscar Slater's. Right. Ah. And it was called Oscar Slater's, I think, in the 80s. So, and I always wondered, who was Oscar Slater? And what a, a strange name for a pub. Yes. Yeah. So I went back to, that's right, there was the Oscar Slater trial, and it was part of the Square Mile of Murder. This was the, the murder of Marion Gilchrist, the mother of Marion. Marion Gilchrist, yeah. Just round the yeah. corner from that. Just, just round the corner. I wasn't quite on Carnarvon Street, West Princess Street, yeah. Just round the turn of the century, I think. Just round the turn of the century, yeah. Oscar Slater was quite a famous case. Tom, you'll remember maybe from college and stuff, from, from our academic studies in the police. That's right. The trials of Oscar Slater is one of these landmark trials. The crux of it was this leading of previous bad history to a jury. And from then on in, of course, that changed very much. But the trial of Oscar Slater, it's been studied in depth and it still is. And if you do a criminology course, a legal course, you'll hear about the trial of Oscar Slater. 
along with the famous cases, the Manuel case, the Chalmers case, the Ruxton case, the trial of Oscar Slater's are right up there. Let's have a wee look at Marion then, if you think about Marion, who was the victim of this uh, this incident uh, that was pinned on Oscar Slater in 1908. And Slater wasn't born as Oscar Slater. He was born as Oscar Joseph Lexiner in Germany, and he changed his name to Oscar Anderson and then Oscar Slater. By the turn of the century, he was living in Glasgow. As Tom says, <laughs> the downfall here was his background, his lifestyle, that he was a gambler and a bit of a gangster, and he claimed to be a gymnastic instructor, a dentist, and a dealer in prep. I think he was a bit, a bit of a con man. Tony, I think that's how it comes across when you read about his life prior to that. He had been about as well. Glasgow wasn't his sort of first destination when he came. It was London to begin with, then Edinburgh, and Glasgow lastly. So he had a, you know, he had moved around a lot. One of the things was, although he was Jewish, one of the things that stands out from the, the trial in the court case was that he got no backup from the Jewish society, which was quite large and affluent in Glasgow at the time who really wanted to distance himself for fear of growing anti-Semitism. Of course, of course, just as prior to the First World War, of course. Yeah, prior to the First World War, yeah. When things were building up. So Marion was 83, and she was beaten to death in a robbery, 49 West Princess Street. She was quite well-to-do, Marion, despite having a lot of jewellery worth a lot of money in her home. The robber seems to have been disturbed by a neighbour and got away with just a brooch. And before the murder, some days before it, somebody had turned up at her door looking for somebody called Anderson. So this, together with the fact, this is quite interesting that Slater went to New York within a few days of the murder. I think the murder was on the 21st of December, Donnie. Does that ring a bell? Yep. Mm -hmm. And two days later, he was on a boat to New York. And that, again, was seen as damning evidence against him. It's interesting, Tom, that uh, a lot of the things that, that, when you read it, you see that the damning evidence. And there's no background to it. There's no. It's all circumstantial, really. And there's not an awful lot of work put into it because we find out later on that he had booked those tickets to New York prior to the murder. But that never came up at the trial. It seemed there was a concerted effort to make our Oscar fit the bill here. Reading Oscar Slater, which I did years and years and years ago, I always got the impression that Oscar Slater was seen as being a dodgy, dishonest foreigner. And that was almost evidence enough. He was a prime candidate just because of his background. And, of course, that's the whole that's the whole nub of the case. So you're absolutely right. It was uh, pretty thin, apart from the fact he was a suspicious character. We were talking to Alan Nicol last week, Donnie, who you'll know through, through Ringwood. He's a Ringwood author and former uh, solicitor and former AD. And we were talking about the media. In fact, we didn't talk about it an awful lot on the podcast, but I've spoken to Alan about it separately, about his book, uh, Sheila Garvey. And Sheila Garvey was convicted of murder in the 70s up in northeast, up past Aberdeen, or Stonehaven, in fact. And the whole thing about her case, the whole thing about his book, is really to determine whether the press were guilty, the media were guilty of getting her convicted. And that seems to have been the case in the Victorian times as well. And the further back we go, the media seemed to play a much, much bigger role in trials and cases than they would now or would be allowed to now because of our laws now. What do you think of that, Tom? That's absolutely right. Remember, the Lord Advocate's guidelines, as they were, didn't exist. And so the press had free reign. 
And if you go right back, I mean, a case I've studied in depth, the Burke and Hare murders, the, the Westport murders, which happened in 1828. So you're talking about way back even before Oscar Slater. And there's no question that the press there absolutely whipped up a frenzy and very much drove the investigation. And we know, Simon, because we've been involved in cases much more recently than that, where if you weren't too careful, the press actually started to drive the investigation. Well, you need to look no further than the so-called Bible John murders to see where that can lead. The other thing is that it's always struck me when you're looking at Oscar Slater and some of the other cases. The one I'm interested in is a case in 1936, Charlotte Bryant. She was an Irish woman, and again, this anti-Irish thing, and she was a mother of five children. And there's a greater judgment placed upon a mother who commits a heinous crime because better was expected of them. And likewise, with a foreigner like Oscar Slater, immediately, it's a kind of an aggravation just being who he was. You think that's still the same in this day and age? I'm not sure. I would like to think there are greater legal protections, but the most recent incarnation of that is the issues around about Muslim offenders because of the terrorist situation, because of the problems that are happening in other sides of the world. They are now the people who are looked on with suspicion. Whereas it used to be the Irish, it's now the Muslim population. And I think you've got to be very careful of that. You've got to remember that when you're making judgments. So, Donnie, what became of our Oscar? Well, funny you're talking about the uh, the press, trial by the press. But Oscar had some big names on his side, you know. He had some, probably the biggest hitter in the land, uh, hitting for him, batting for him with Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes author came to his defence asking for a full pardon for him, which he didn't get. And that was after the book written by Roughhead in the case of Oscar Slater. A whole host of people come in saying, you know, this doesn't look right. Another thing about the evidence was that there was only a brooch stolen from Marion. Let's remember that she was severely battered about the head and face and body. She'd broken ribs. She was 83 years of age. So it was quite a horrific murder in its day and, and had to be solved, might I suggest. But there was only this brooch stolen uh, because we think he was disturbed or the, that was the, the theory of the day. And Oscar was found to have pawned a brooch and had the ticket in his pocket for this brooch that he had pawned when he was arrested. That sounds damning. It was a different brooch. And it was pawned two weeks before the murder. It was actually a fantastic defence that he had in his pocket, but it was used in the prosecution of him. And it's great having all these big hitters coming on board, but it took 19 years for and he never got pardoned. Uh, he was originally sentenced to death, I think, Don. Sentenced to death within the month. Yeah, it was meant to be almost immediate hanging, and we got a 20,000 signed petition by locals in Glasgow area. And, you know, 20,000 people signed on him, so... The idea of the scary foreigner thing, maybe not. The talk in the street must have been, and the pubs must have been, this is a setup here, this is a fit-up for this guy. It's funny you mentioned Conan Doyle's involvement. By that time, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, he'd begun to be involved in all sorts of things like spiritualism and stuff like that. The fairies, remember the fairy photograph? It was him that gave that a, a, a signature of authenticity. That's right, he fell for the fake photograph, that's right. But he did take up causes. One of his big things was fairness. Fairness to the accused and better 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man be hanged, that sort of thing. And I think maybe that's what really struck home to the people of Glasgow. They just got this sense of unfairness 
of a lack of balance, and that's what they, they didn't like. The truth of the matter is, if that kind of environment prevails, it could happen to them as much as it could happen to Oscar Slater. Yeah, and, and that's right. And that's what we all have to bear in mind. Yeah. Interesting you're saying is that 19 years, I mean, 19 years, hard labour in Peterhead, you know? Dear, dear, dear. If you were to look on the bright side, not that it did him any good, but actually his case changed the law for the better and has become a kind of a foundation stone of Scottish justice. I have to say, much to our annoyance sometimes when you, you can't lead previous convictions, when you know somebody standing in the court with a record as long as an arm, it is quite an important principle, and it started with him. We just forgot to mention about the identity parade. Oh. Well, the police brought in nine quite obvious policemen <laughs> and Oscar in the middle. <laughs> Which one's the guilty man here, then? And because uh, that led to a lot of reform as well with the with identity plates there. So, Donnie, something you've got to be very conscious of here, and I heard you saying there about uh, about how the public came to to his side to champion him when they learned uh, some of the stuff we're talking about here. Twenty thousand people, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, all these high-powered people of the day uh, coming forward, which is a lot. Twenty thousand people coming. It flies in the face of his nationality, his background that people would have been aware of by now. And something you need to remember is that Tom said about that side of life, that he would be a foreigner, etc. There's two cultures here. There's the East Coast culture, where no doubt he wouldn't have got any of that support. And then there's the West Coast in Glasgow, where we would all want justice done, you know. Because of the backing of the public, his sentence is commuted to 20 years. He was sentenced to life, wasn't he? And sent to Peterhead Prison, but again, because of this campaign, because of people like Arthur Conan Doyle, eventually he only does 19 and a half years hard labour at Peterhead. Is that, yeah. is that a fair yeah. summary? Absolutely. And what yeah. becomes of him thereafter, Donnie? What becomes of him is his luck. goes on. You know, the, the luck of Oscar Slater, as we say in the West End. And uh, he, you know, for all intents and purposes, retires to air marries a, a German descent woman. They settle down to spend their, sort of their golden years together on the Ayrshire coast. Second World War's declared. Next thing you know, him and his missus are in an internment camp. For a couple of years. Well, I think it was actually reduced, so they got out quite soon. Yeah. One of the reasons he excited for that is by that time, he had a pretty good East Coast Scottish accent. Ah. Uh, ah. You know, so he didn't look it and he didn't sound, he didn't sound alien. But... Uh, <laughs> Tragically, the, the dark side is as well. The rest of his family in Germany uh, were rounded up by the Nazis and died. Yeah, which just goes to show that no matter the plight you're in, a cultivated East Coast Scottish accent is the passport to freedom and excellence. Sorry, I don't understand. Like, you speak slowly. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm up against, Tony? That's why I invited you on, really. <laughs> I think just to run it back a bit, just to mention one thing, and that is that when you read the trial of Oscar Slater, in actual fact, there was a lot of legal disquiet about it too. And I'm not sure. I think the huge public support assisted, but also within the legal fraternity, there was also starting to be questions about the fairness of it. And I think that was another a factor that weighed on it. But as you said, Simon, it's a prize. But I mean, 19 and a half years in Peterhead, I mean, Peterhead was... It was, uh, and I'm talking about recently, I visited Peterhead Prison in the early 2000s. 
And even then, it was a horrible place. What it must have been like in 1900, I don't know. So, Donnie, at the start of that uh, tragic tale, or certainly tragic for Oscar and for Marion, of course, what was the biggest thing about it with these miscarriages of justice and, and such like is that the actual murderer was a waste of me. I was actually just thinking that earlier, you know, that really, you know, whoever it was got off with it for, for, the, for the price of a brooch, you know. There was no forced entry. I noticed that when I was reading about the actual crime itself. So it looks like it was someone that knew her. And her maid uh, had just gone out, as she did most evenings, to go and get the evening paper or a bit of shopping or whatever. Uh, so it was someone that knew her and knew the routine of the household because it was a big house, a big Victorian uh, house in the West End of Glasgow in a, a well-to-do area. Uh, so it's someone that had either been watching or I suspect that knew Marion, maybe a family member or maybe someone through business or whatever that knew what was in the house. Well, in saying that, they didn't know where the, the jewels were. You know, yeah. Today's prices, you know, £300,000 worth of jewels in there, seemingly in her wardrobe, and they were going through her papers. So who knows what it was they were actually looking for or what it was they were doing. It looked to me, I don't know how it was in the West, but during the 70s and 80s, we had a lot of bogus workmen who would call at big houses, trying to con their way in and steal whatever they could. And I remember years ago when I was reading the trial of Oscar Slater, I sort of got the impression that it had all the hallmarks of that because the violence was completely disproportionate, completely disproportionate. All that needed to be done to an old lady, if she'd been interceding in the theft, she could just have been shoved out of the way. It struck me as being completely disproportionate and probably somebody, you know, a stranger coming to the door and got caught in the act perhaps and overreacted. Yeah. And you wonder what else he must have done, having gotten away scot-free from that one. Absolutely. It's the other danger, Tom, uh, as we've discussed before, is when the police focus and put blinkers on and focus on an accused who looks like the main man. What they naturally do, apart from letting the culprit away, is that they, they miss everything else round about that. They don't go looking for similar crimes. They don't go doing door-to-door inquiries. They don't do the things that they would do if it was a whodunit and if they didn't have that suspect. Yeah, and sometimes they do more than that, Simon. Sometimes another piece of information which is getting in the way of their direction of travel is willfully ignored. There's no way they didn't know that the brooch had been bought, but they chose to ignore that and not lead it. It's another aspect of, of criminal procedure, Donny. We cover quite a lot of procedural stuff on here. And it's another aspect, it's quite a modern aspect, Tom, is disclosure, that you have to disclose all of your inquiries to the defence during a serious trial like that. And that's a big step forward, I think, in thoroughness and not having miscarriages of justice like that. That only really came about because of another case where um, there was clearly evidence being unearthed by the police that pointed away from the suspect and which was not produced. And that's where disclosure came from. You usually find that that the law is actually comprised of a a whole lot of experiences, usually uh, bad experiences like Oscar Slater, and then a patch is put into the legal system and the law to make sure that that eventuality is covered the next time. Donnie, we had uh, three other murders in our murder mile, the mile of murder. But... I don't want to go on to them just now because we're we're coming to the end of our podcast. I don't know if you know this, but you mentioned a name at the start of this tale because of the location and because of your musings in the West End and 
and digging out old photographs, the name of Linda McCartney and her lesser-known husband of the day, Paul McCartney. You know that they were friends of mine, don't you? Who? Linda and Paul? Yes. Oh, because you were down, you, you were the local Bobby in the Beat, weren't you? No, I wasn't. I was in the CID. Oh, sorry, sorry. They only had one policeman in Campbellton, for God's sake. So, well, you know, the... well, that was everything. I went to meet Paul. This would be 1981. I was doing my aid to CID, and the DS was off. He was off sick, so I was on my own. So I was the only detective within 100 square miles. And we had a thing in Campbelltown called the August Show. And obviously it was held in July. <laughs> don't, don't ask. <laughs> the day before it, I thought, I'm going to go and meet Paul and ask him what his movements are tomorrow. Because he always came to this farm show, this uh, uh, agricultural show. So that was my excuse to go and meet him, Donnie, up at his farm. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So I drove away up and old poor Cartina. I nearly took the sump out of it. And when I got there, eventually, because I had to get through <laughs> layers of guards and farm managers and whatnot, and when I got outside his farmhouse, <laughs> I was suited and booted, of course, with the CID card. What I was confronted with was Linda McCartney <laughs> with her face like a oh, frozen face, you've no idea. I was scared. I was absolutely scared. And she came out, and by this time I'm shaking, and she said, uh, yes, can I help you? At this time, Paul's flushing all the dope down the toilet, is it? Yeah. That's a scandalous, scandalous accusation. Yes, we're going to have to cut that out. Obviously, we'll get done for libel. Trust you, Donnie. Not that, Paul. <laughs> Well, toilets flushing, but there's a lot of children. You know. yeah. So she came out and said, yes, can I help you? So I produced my warrant card, which usually opened doors for, for young detectives. <laughs> Not with the case of Linda McCartney. Far from smiling and saying, oh, hello, officer, how can I help you? Her face went even steelier, and she was ready to grab me by the collar and march me into my car. <laughs> and I would have gone. By that time, my bottle had crashed completely. I'd forgotten why I was there. I had, you know, a powerful woman can do that to you quite easily. But for some reason, as I was mumbling, I, I, she said, uh, would you like to meet Paul? And I said, oh, yes, please. <laughs> and she said, come and get a cup of tea then. <laughs> she, went, she had kids the same age as me, you know. <laughs> so she took me into the farmhouse. And Paul wasn't there at first, but the kids came running in. How many strangers? Do they get, you know, not very many, not very many. So, and, and far from me getting to ask Paul anything, the kids were asking me all the questions, you know, about being a policeman. He got a radio and all that stuff. So the kids all came in and sat around this table, and it was just, it was just a wonderful atmosphere. Linda had created this wonderful family, pictures and all the stuff going on, and eventually the man himself came in and sat down. And he was telling stories about the police, about being a 17-year-old Tom in Liverpool, getting stopped every couple of hours in his E-type jack that he was driving about. <laughs> uh, so he was telling the kids some of these stories. He told me a cracker about uh, he'd been on top of the pops a week or two before with whatever single he had out at that time. And his wee boy, Jamie, who would be about three at the time, had been watching television. And he'd been staring at the television, and then Paul came on. And he kept turning around and looking at Paul and back to the television. And eventually he said, Dad, 
Are you Paul McCartney? (laughs) 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 So he took me for a wee tour around his recording studio. The neighbours, the neighbouring farm had complained about him and his wings, buddies, the noise that they'd been making. So he bought their farm as well. (laughs) And they had a recording studio, all the equipment, all the blah, blah, blah. But I suppose the punchline to it, in fact, you need to read my book to to get the real essence of that, Donny. I'm sure if you don't know this story, then you haven't read my book. Oh, I know it well. I know it well. Yeah. (laughs) I was just just leading you into it. I was just, yeah. So as I was leaving, Paul came out to the car with me and he stopped me before I got in the car and he said, Simon, could you do me a favour? And he handed me a wee plastic bag with a cigarette packet in it, John Player Special. And he said, I was out horse riding this morning and I think I've been seeing binoculars glinting. Don't forget that John Lennon had been murdered the year before in New York City. You couldn't say it's paranoid when you're Paul McCartney and you think somebody might be stalking but he gave me this packet of cigarettes. He said he'd found it on the farm as he was out horse riding, and he thought that someone must have been there on, on the grounds, and he was about worried about it. So I said, no problem, Paul. Paul now, get it? Paul, you know, I'll get this off to Interpol, whatever they're called, right away, no problem, fingerprinting. So I, I think I smoked them or I put them in my desk or whatever, but don't ever tell them that. But the next day, was the agricultural show at Peterson Park. And I had to go up there to do my duty. I was suited and booted, parked the car, went for a walk. And there's a big area up in the far end where they do all the horsey stuff. And that's what Paul and Linda were into. They had all the kids with them and they had their horses and they were doing their their, uh, stuff. And Paul was doing nothing other than sitting in his Land Rover reading the Glasgow Herald. And there was a, a makeshift fence. It was just a bit of string, actually, between sticks to keep the public away from the horse riding path. But all Paul was doing was reading his Glasgow Herald, and there must have been a crowd of about 80, 60, 80, 100, just standing, staring at him, just standing in the big semicircle, staring at him as he's reading his Glasgow Herald. And I'm walking behind them, right? I'm behind the crowd. They're all facing Paul. There's no way I'm going over to disturb him. But as I'm walking past, all I hear is the voice. Hi, Simon, how are you? And it's Linda McCartney. <laughs> so the whole crowd, Donnie, turned around <laughs> to look at me <laughs> to see who it was. And I've relived that moment so many times in my head and wish I'd said something cool or something dismissive, like, Linda, I'm working, you know, don't be <laughs> But I didn't. I <laughs> <laughs> and everybody turned back again. So as I was coming out, I'll just I'll wait to tell somebody this story, no doubt, that Linda McCartney knew who I was. I came across a local uh, girl, uh, Lorna Black, and she was in her car, and she was friends with Heather McCartney. And the two of them are sitting in the car and puffing away, feet up in the dashboard, windows wide open, smoking like chimneys in the car. And, of course, I went up to the car and said, Hi, Lorna. Hi, Heather. How are you? Oh, you're the policeman that was up at our house yesterday. But I said, yeah. And your mum and dad don't know you smoke, do they? <laughs> Shock horror. And I said, is that John Player special by any chance? She must have thought I was some detective. <laughs> <laughs> or had fantastic... recognised the smoke. Of course, it was yeah. John Player special. And I told her... Is that right? Yeah. 
That's a great story. You should, you should write that one down. <laughs> I told her the story about the day before and made a promise not to throw cigarettes away on the farm anymore. Throw them away before you get to the, the homestead next time. So that was the kind. But you need to read the whole thing to get the whole gist of it. You know, me and Paul being pals and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us again about the Linda McCartney photograph. We need to get our audience onto this. Well, that would be great. That would be wonderful because it's a mystery. You can get the photograph off the web, you know. Paul McCartney in Glasgow outside a pub and it says Cameron's behind him and there's a Whitbread poster even better, go onto my website and read all the comments, uh, Glasgow West End. People have identified the gang sprays in the background, you know, right. what the gang logos are, whatever. We know what year it was, Donnie? Uh, I think it was 70, 1973, I think, top of my head. Okay. 73, yeah. And you think, people think it was a Carnarvon bar? Well, it says Cameron's, you know, along the top of the pub. Yeah. It says Cameron's. As far as I can find out, there only ever was one Cameron's in Glasgow, and that was the pub that later became known as uh, the Carnarvon, and it's now gone back to be called Cameron's, and at one time was called Oscar Slater's. Okay, we're going to get the Crime Time team onto the. But, and I've checked uh, not just in Glasgow, but roundabout, because Linda McCartney has said it was taken in Glasgow, and she said it was taken in the Carnarvon, and she said Paul was actually in the deli the other side of the road, buying some food for their drive up to Campbelltown. And everybody says, yeah, there was a deli the other side of the road. Cameron's was there, the other side. But it's not the actual physical building. It's not Cameron's. It's like, I've been out measured it. It's not Cameron's. So it's a mystery. Okay. Well, you come to the right place, Donnie McIntyre. Absolutely. Well, when I come back on next day, I'm hoping we have an answer to this. Well, yeah. well we'll get three other murders to get to. So if you don't get invited, you know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> we failed again. <laughs> we'll need to set up an instant room, Tom. We'll need to get an instant room set up up there. Yeah, right. That's it. That's what we need. Yeah, that's what we need. We'll 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 crack it. We'll crack it. Donnie, that's brilliant. I hope you will come back and talk about the other murders. When you've got the slightest clue what you're talking about, will you come back on and join us on the podcast? That will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent a lifetime winging it. <laughs> and I don't intend to change now. Thank you very much. You'll feel perfectly at home on this podcast. I can see that. Tell you. Sorry, but I can see that. <laughs> Donnie, thanks very much for doing that for us tonight and for talking My about it. My pleasure. Oscar. And giving me a chance to talk about my pals, Paul and Linda. I should have said it was remiss of me to say that although I went up there to see Paul McCartney for obvious reasons, since that day I've had a huge admiration for Linda McCartney. She really was a wonderful person. How long after that was she? did she die? It was about 20 years after that. Was it? Just about yeah. 20 years ago, you know. Yeah, yeah. She's got a remembrance garden down in Campbelltown. She was very... I've seen photographs of it. It's beautiful. They were both very well regarded down in Campbelltown. Because there was no airs mm. and graces about them. Mm. There was nothing pretentious about McCartney or Linda or their kids whatsoever. They were mm. very much part of the community down there. Mm. Donnie, thanks very much for coming along and doing that tonight. You've been fantastic. Keep up the good work and get us lots more stories and crimes that you can bring back to Crime Time Inc. Thanks, Donnie. It's been good to meet you, and I'll meet you again next week. Will do. See you next Sunday. Yeah. Yep. Cheers, then. Next time on Crime Time Inc. I can remember one of the first ones that I did when I was a young lad 
younger reporter in Clyde Bank, and it was maybe one of the first times that I'd had to go to someone's door. And needless to say, you know, you're more anxious when, you, when you've never done it before. So I had gone to the door, and as I approached the house, the door was slightly open. And I thought, oh no, that this is this is makes it, I don't know why, but it just felt even more awkward. That the door was half open, and I thought, what am I going to find, you know? Anyway, I went up and just as I was about to chat the door, the door flew open. 